Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Uh, I am good, um, and in, uh, I am particularly enthusiastic to uh, continue our discussion of uh, uh, from our p- previous podcast episode, looking at tests used by the United States Supreme Court, and by default, lower federal and state courts. Um, yes, and I just want to note for the record, this is a part two, so if you haven't heard part one, this one might not make as much sense, so you should probably go listen to part one. Sometimes our part ones and part twos are kind of separated, and it's okay to listen to one before the other. Not in this case, because we're going to reference case. some stuff that we were taught, we talked about before. Yes. Because um, we're going to get to the end. I want to finish like I want to finish the test parts and then I want to talk to you about intent because yeah. a huge amount of this is is based in the idea of intent yes um so but you you have in your notes something that I think is interesting how how does the government know when it has established a religion okay so the last episode finished with a discussion of the Miller test which looked at um uh, 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 freedom of speech, and in particular, um, the Supreme Court tried to figure out a way to give guidance as to um, protected speech, i.e. pornography, right. okay? So pornography is protected by the First Amendment, but obscene speech is not, right? Right. But there are other clauses of the First Amendment that are also particularly difficult to interpret and apply. So one of which is the Congress. Est- oh, sorry. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, yada, 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 rest of the amendment. Yes. So what I shouldn't say it like it's a blow off. <laughs> sorry, it is an important amendment. It's the first one for a reason. Um, but 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 nice reference uh, to one of the famous catchphrases from the TV show Seinfeld. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's where yada yada comes from for the young people who didn't see Seinfeld, um, or who just say it as if it's habit, like I do. So no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So that means, if I'm reading correctly, which I could be wrong, that. Theoretically, what the founders, the founders did not want a state religion and they meaning a federal religion, right? They didn't want the federal government to say, and tomorrow we shall all be Catholic or whichever one. I'm not picking on Catholic or Protestant or Scientologists or whoever. And they also didn't want the federal government to say no one shall be Catholic or Protestant or Scientologist or Or religious in general. That's right. Because they didn't want they didn't want the government to either make you all be something or make you not be something. Religion was a significant issue for many of the framers. Right. That's why they bailed out of England, right? Yeah, because a whole bunch of the framers, okay, a whole bunch of the colonists migrated from Great Britain, okay, 
for a number of reasons, but one of the most prominent was religious freedom. Because in Great Britain at that time, you basically had to be a member of the Anglican Protestant faith. And if you weren't, you could be prosecuted slash persecuted. <laughs> insert Henry VIII here. Yeah, right. Right. Okay. It's a long thing and we're not going to go into yeah, it because okay. it's British history and but religion, but, but they religion. had an established religion. They had a state established religion. Yes. Okay. And you had no choice. You had to participate in the religious life of the British crown. And they had wars over whether you were going to be Catholic <laughs> or Anglican. Yes. Because okay. they had various monarchs over the years that went back and forth. Forth. That's right. Okay. Between the, between the two. So the difficulty for the former colonists was on one hand, how do you make sure that there is not a national established religion? But on the other hand, how do you protect those who want to be religious? Right. Okay. Now let's look at that first part, the first clause, the first religion clause, the establishment clause, right? How does the government know when it has gone too far in regards to its relationship with religion, right? When it has so, overprotected a religion, <laughs> right? Okay. So that, that's your Because we're not talking about the federal government establishing a religion, meaning they make up their own religion. That's not necessarily what that means. It could just mean that they favor one religion over all the Another, other religions. Or should the government be involved at all with religion, right? You know, so, you know, the classic right. example from the public education setting is, let's say the federal government wants to give a whole bunch of money for K through 12 schools. <laughs> and which, you and I have had this discussion before, I okay, believe. Yeah, which... The, gov the federal government has done a number of times, right? No child left behind. Right. Okay. Uh, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act from 1965. Well, right? and free meals. Okay. For kids all the time say, if we want to do a better job, we need more cash. And the feds step in and say, okay, here's a whole bunch of cash. <laughs> but can that money be the used... That we found in a drawer somewhere. So, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> By selling oil reserves. See earlier. See episode. earlier. Episode. Yeah, right? Okay. <laughs> but can that financial aid from the federal government be used by private schools, specifically private religious schools? Hmm. Right? Yes. Okay. So in the 1950s and 60s, the court really struggled with how do we know when the government has established a religion or is too entangled with religion and would violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment? So in 1971, in the case of Lemon versus Kurtzman, the Supreme Court created a three-part test. And it became known as the Lemon Test. An absolutely 
terrible name because for those of us of a certain age, okay, a lemon is a bad thing. Is a bad thing. It's more yeah. Than if your car a is a lemon, lemon, okay, it's a poorly maintained, broken down vehicle that somebody sold you and under false pretenses, pretenses and you yes. got a lemon right you got a lemon it's, right. and it's it's weird because the fruit itself is an, an innocuous like yes like whatevs put it on your fish put it in some water and drink it whatever yes right but you yeah know, it turned into a thing so but this is a different just, kind of lemon because this is a person named lemon okay yes lemon right? versus Kurt, uh, kurtzman yes um the three-part test the law or policy must have a secular purpose. So, and this is going to tie back to your comment about intent, right? The overall purpose of the law, the policy, the program is it has to be secular, non-religious. We're feeding kids. We're educating kids. We're kids. doing something with whatever it is. Yes. That is in your school example. Sorry, yes. to follow through with the school example. school example. We are not teaching them religion. We are teaching them reading, writing, and arithmetic. arithmetic yes. And we're feeding them, right? Yes. Like yes. all of which are secular activities. You know, we're, we're giving you guys millions of dollars for textbooks. These are not religious. Right. Books. We're not to, not to buy Bibles, but to buy math. You know, books. math books, biology, right? right? Okay. Second. Its principal or primary effect does not advance or inhibit religion. The last part of that prong of the test was inserted to make sure that it didn't violate the free exercise clause because you cannot inhibit religion. Okay. <laughs> You see where this gets really, really tricky. Right. <laughs> then the third part cannot foster an excessive government entanglement with religion. So it can't look like it's championing. Yes. Like we're so our school analogy, let's just say here, our school analogy. If they said we're going to give it to private Catholic schools, but we're not going to give it to private Muslim schools, then you have both the inhibit clause part of the test and the excessive entanglement, entanglement. because it's are, shown a preference. Okay. Yes, because you're okay. But in application, this test was almost impossible to pull off, Nia. Okay? Well, yeah, I mean, okay. It is so subjective. Right? What if in your town there is only a Catholic private school? Yes, right. Right. Then it looks like it's ex it looks like excessive entanglement. But in fact, there isn't another school of a different faith to give money to, or you would do that as well. But if your school is if your town is small enough that the only other private or the only private school is from one particular religion. And I'm picking on Catholics because it's easy because the Catholic church has a lot of schools, but let's say that it's Baptist, let's say it's whatever you, you could get in trouble. You could get sued for doing what would look like excessive entanglement with a particular religion the yes. or advancing a particular religion. religion. And in the application of this test get led to some like really ludicrous 
Supreme Court, if you will, cases, opinions, and discussions. My favorite was the Lynch versus Donnelly case, uh, Nia, from 1984, um, which was a case concerning um, a nativity scene in a local government jurisdiction. Ah. And the Supreme Court said that because the display put on by the local government had both religious and non-religious elements, it did not violate the lemon test. And the majority okay. opinion written by Chief Justice Warren Berger, who by the way, wrote the majority opinion in the Lemon versus Kurtzman case, went ahead and said that the nativity scene was offset by the fact that there were also reindeers. You know, Santa Claus and the reindeer? The well-known rain um, shepherd who guided his reindeer at night. Um, so this became known as the reindeer <laughs> element or the reindeer test, right? And, and we're laughing about this, listeners, and, and, and this is serious, right? Because if you're non-religious or if you believe that the government should not establish a religion, then you know, you're, you are sensitive to the government seemingly showing a preference for religion or a particular type. But the oh. lemon test is so subjective. Right that eventually most of the Supreme Court justices ended up repudiating the test. And it actually led to one of my favorite Justice Scalia um, <laughs> quotes. <laughs> Scalia disparaged the Lemon test as, quote, a goal in a late night horror movie that stalks our establishment clause <laughs> jurisprudence. <laughs> A zombie that just keeps coming up. Well, the other thing, sorry, uh, just to ask a question about this. So along these same lines, many courthouses used to have the Ten Commandments. That's right. Put up somewhere, basically. Yes. Um, in part because a lot of American law comes out of judeo-christian right the abrahamic tradition right yes um and so and people like lost their minds and were like you can't have the ten commandments up them i'm like i i have to admit that there's a part of me that's that's that wants to say to people it's a piece of paper and if you don't want to read it just don't read it right it's yes. not it's not establishing that we shall hold people to it says thou shalt not and i think we can all agree thou shalt not murder other people because murdering other people is a bad idea I, so it doesn't see it seems and i'm a person who's very secular i'm not i'm not a religious individual um and yet i'm not bothered by those kinds of things and i'm fascinated by people who are bothered by those kinds of things now that being said i have to admit that i struggle with the idea of giving private schools government money because private schools exclude students and and i struggle with that 
so there, there's a lot of things to untangle there. And I'm not even really going to get into the private school question because that's a, you and I have both covered that and it could go on forever. But I do think this test is terrible. This is one of those, this is the same as the pornography. I, I don't know how to describe it, but I know it when I see it. Okay, yeah. well, <laughs> that's a terrible test too in the sense of what is pornographic to one individual may not be pornographic to another individual. I mean, they used to hang, well, well, what, well, who was it? Was it, was it um, which, which one of the attorneys general or department heads was it? I can't remember who it was put a, a drape over the justice oh, uh, uh, lady justice lady um, justice who, who by the way has one breast uncovered because in the way of roman statues they didn't think of breasts as particularly sexual they just thought they were body parts and they put them out there because they thought they were pretty and because a lot of outfits actually were topless or partially topless or whatever you should look at the side of a toga sometime if you want to look at that historical costuming but they draped a do you remember who i'm talking about yeah you're talking about attorney general john ashcroft ah, the, thank you he was the first attorney general for uh in the bush 43 administration and um when he took uh office as uh attorney general for the united states um, he uh, uh, had um, a drape put over Lady Justice because um, uh, he was offended by the display of the uh, breast and nipple. Yes. Right. So yes. what his struck him as pornography, the rest oh, no, of no, us no. were like, no, that you was know that's a statue, right? No, no, no. He thought it was obscene. Oh, remember. Okay. Pornography is protected by the first. <laughs> but obscenity is not. Sorry. Yeah, he, thought, right? he thought that a breast was obscene, which yes. I want to suggest may have had long repercussions in his life, but neither here nor there. Right? Like, I don't see statues and see them as sexual objects. For the most no, part, I, mean, I see statues and I go, huh, a statue, and I move on. So it says yeah, something it, it, about the eye of the beholder. Yeah, it, it's kind of sort of like, um, uh, you know, uh, Nia, I, I appreciate paintings. And one of my favorite paintings um, is the Aronimus Bosch uh, painting, uh, The Garden of Earthly Delights. Ah. Okay. Um, but I recall um, uh, opening up uh, an art textbook in high school, in my very Catholic school, okay? and a nun looking over my shoulder and she was just aghast but another nun said but that's not obscene that is a classic piece of art from a painter who was describing okay in trying to in very biblical terms describe what he thought was going on in his society at that time and that's the difficulty with artwork right and that's the difficulty with speech but that's also the difficulty with trying to determine if the government is too involved with religion right yeah because any involvement is too much involvement for some people people but others would go ahead and say it's all right for the government to be involved with religion as long as they don't play any favorites 
Right. And that touches upon the two dominant interpretations of the religion clauses of the First Amendment. You have some, like infamously Thomas Jefferson, who believed there should be a clear wall between church and state. Right. But These two are, things are not and should they, not come together at all. They, they should not come together at all. But you have others who argue, no, the religion clauses don't prohibit the government from interacting with religion. It just prohibits the government, okay, picking favor. which religion. Yes, right. you know, showing favor. And that view is known as the accommodation or accommodationist interpretation. Um, Can I have both? <laughs> And the reason I say that is because I'm fine with with sort of treating all religions the same if you establish that what you're dealing with is a religion, except in one instance. I personally believe, and sorry, listeners, if you disagree with me, feel free to write me hate mail. That's fine. Um, I personally believe that the IRS should not recognize tax-exempt status for any religion. For any church, oh, okay. I, I, they are not charities to me. Um, I, so I don't. You're, you're, you're uh, willing now, to. Some of them willing. have charitable arms that should be, right? Some of them do charitable work, and it's clearly charitable work that should be that should fall into the charity category. But ginormous religions that own huge amounts of land and property and get billions of dollars from their parishioners each year, show me how they're how they're how they themselves are charities because I just don't I don't believe they are. So the United so the United States Congress believing that Americans um, uh, should have a spiritual life. And that should be incentivized with giving tax breaks to religious organizations you don't buy. <laughs> Listeners, again, this is one of those times to where having a visual recording of us doing the podcast would have been really beneficial. And terrifying. Because Nia just went ahead and stuck her tongue out at me. <laughs> yes, I did. I blew a raspberry. And the reason I blew raspberries because no, I don't. If you have to, if you have to entice people to have religion, then that's not working. Like the, okay, religion but, but, is but, 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 religion but, is a means of. I mean, is an end in of itself, right? You should be because, happy but, to go but, to church because church makes you happy. If I have to give you tax breaks to go to church, like, dude, that's like saying to you, that's that is the wrong kind of parenting. As it were, do you say to to Mac, I will give you extra dessert if you do your homework? Like, no, do your homework because you need to do your homework because it's the right whoa, thing whoa, to whoa, do. Whoa, 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 whoa! Hey, sometimes I do pick the la the, the path of least resistance. Okay. Okay, you and, coward. <laughs> and, and, and and I bribe my kid. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. anyway, and we can have that discussion another time. I mean, it because like I mean, we should, but, but but we might want to have a podcast episode about how legislative bodies use the tax code to incentivize public behavior. Okay, I'm happy because, to do that because this kind of sort of begs the question. 
about the various tax breaks, okay, in tax credits that are found in most developed democracies tax codes to encourage their citizenry to engage in behavior that uh, some economists are like, but shouldn't the public be doing this stuff anyways? I would argue that the tax code is overly complicated in order to entice people to either break the law or to not own anything so they don't have to go through all that. I'm so, just saying uh, so the tax code words, benefits accountants and tax lawyers. So you're basically saying that legislative bodies complicate, complicate the tax code as a form of government entrapment. Yes. <laughs> that is what I am saying. Well said. That is exactly what I'm saying. Okay. So, okay, so let's, get, more, let's go back. We have let's, two more that we're going to, that we're going to do. Can I suggest that we, that we go ahead and tackle the right to privacy and um, and the current existing right to abortion? Sure. Um, yes. yes. Now, first of all, I would like to suggest to listeners, once again, Augie and I are not here to debate the merits of, of abortion itself. That is not our... No. We are not interested in having that discussion. If you want to have that discussion with us individually or together, but privately, we may or may not talk to you about that as a as people, but we advance no position on that. That's correct. As far as this podcast is concerned, because it's none of our business. That's not, I think we both agree. Yes. That we don't, neither one of us, I being too old and Augie being a man, do not have a, a dog in that hunt. Yes. As far as having opinions yeah. about the actual. Yeah, I don't have a stake. I don't have a stake in that particular game, um, but there is going to be um, uh, this year, um, and there's already been a fair amount of discussion of how the Supreme Court, um, again, um, tries to determine the extent to which the government may abridge a woman's right to privacy as it relates to the choice to have an abortion. Right. And this is part of, and, and for our listeners, um, uh, we're recording this episode before the Supreme Court has finished its 2021-2022 term and is yet to announce a decision in its um current abortion case, uh, the Dobbs case, the Mississippi abortion law case. But you're going to hear a lot of discussion um, about um, tests that the Supreme Court has used um, to decide whether or not a government regulation is unconstitutional. Now, when the Supreme Court first declared that a woman has a right to choose as protected by the privacy right. That was announced in the Roe v. Wade case. 1973. Now, in the court's majority opinion, the court made it very clear that a woman's right to choose is not absolute, meaning the government could regulate 
the right. And it shows by amount of pregnancy, right? Like length of pregnancy. Yeah. Not, um, not amount. You're either pregnant or you're not. Or you're not. Length, but length of pregnancy. How yeah. long you had been pregnant at what could point, determine. Yeah. At what point in the pregnancy, right? That, that determines when a woman no longer has the right to choose to have an abortion because the baby is X far along or the. Yeah. So, embryo or whatever you however you want to refer to the so the majority opinion written by justice blackman basically divided up a woman's uh, pregnancy into trimesters three month discrete units in the first trimester the first three months a woman's right to choose was pretty close to absolute Okay. In the second trimester, months four through six, the state could regulate a woman's pregnancy, in particular to protect women's health. Okay. Third trimester is where the state's authority to regulate was much more expansive because at that point in time, in medical science, the fetus could be viable outside a woman's body. At seven months. Yes, so from seven to nine months, okay? And that was the test in evaluating government regulations of a woman's right to choose for nearly 20 years. Yeah, 1970s, sorry, as a side note here, we need to think about the state of medical science at that point. Yes. Right, because that's part of what they're basing this on, is that at, at seven months, you could preemie deliver and a, and a baby could survive. And so they were, they were suggesting that at that point, it becomes much more complicated to engage in an, an abortion because it is much more in line with this is a living thing that could live outside the mother and that's where you get into competing interests. Right. And the court acknowledged that in the last trimester, okay. There's um, now a, an interest on the child's side. Yes, okay. Okay. Now, the court in 1992 jettisoned the trimester framework or test in the case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. They replaced it with a new test the undue burden standard, okay? Which basically said that any government regulation that placed an undue burden on a woman's right to choose was unconstitutional. And the new test or the new standard arose because the plurality opinion written by justices O'Connor, Souter and Kennedy said that medical science had made the trimester framework obsolete. Right, because now you can actually grow a child all the way from embryo to child, child. In, a, in a lab. And in particular, a fetus in a woman's body could be viable earlier in the pregnancy. Right. Okay. Now, the Mississippi law that is at the heart of the Dobbs case. Wait, wait. Yeah, go so ahead. So undue burden standard 
is the current, if you will, test. And that yep. is, what do they mean by undue burden? Is that you can't prohibit abortion? They didn't like, say. They didn't say when in a woman's pregnancy. They just said if it placed a substantial obstacle on a woman wanting to avail herself of the right to choose. So you can't close all the abortion clinics in a state because that places an undue burden. But you could place other kinds of regulations on them. Okay. Okay. Um, other things that the Supreme Court said were not undue burdens, a 24-hour waiting period. Okay. Um, oh, and there was a case about they can, a state can, um, something about hearing the heart, sonograms, you. Yes, um, states can go ahead and, and require a sonogram. Yeah, require um, that the woman uh, uh, be exposed to, um, you know, what she, you know, what she is carrying in her body before she makes the decision. Right. right? Um, juveniles, okay, um, either had to get parental consent or consent from a judge. Ah. Okay. okay. In case you know, in cases of incest, okay, a judge, um, uh, a, a, a judicial bypass, a neutral right? party. Okay. Okay. What the Supreme Court held pretty consistently is spousal consent was an undue burden. That's interesting. Okay, because again, the logic was, you know, um, your spouse doesn't control your body. Just yeah, and married. that's complicated, right? Because your spouse is also theoretically the the other parent of. But what if you ended up getting pregnant by somebody other than your spouse? Right. You would have. Or to get you your... were impregnated <laughs> through violence from your spouse. Your spouse. Or... That's right. Right. Okay. So there are any number of exceptions as to why getting your spouse to approve you getting would, an would be a terrible idea. Would be a terrible idea. Would right. be an undue burden. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so what is the new case proposed to do? The Dobbs case um, uh, concerning the Mississippi law would restrict women getting abortion after 15 weeks. So it, it almost goes back to the trimester framework. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, the writers or the drafters of the law based it on a number of European nation laws. But what I'm saying is when people say that it's going to destroy Roe v. Wade, it it actually uses the standard set up in Roe v. Wade. Yeah, they just go but ahead it narrows and, the standard to now well, it's yeah, the first trimester as opposed to the third trimester. Because there are now OBGYNs who argue that a fetus can be viable as early as 18 weeks. And you can't be exactly certain when you may or yes. may not have become pregnant. I see. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So do you think that the standard will change again? Um, 
Okay. I think there are at least four justices on the Supreme Court who would like to maintain that women have a right to choose, but might be willing to discuss changing the standard. I think there are at least three justices who believe that a woman having a right to choose is not protected by the US Constitution. Okay. okay. So if the Supreme Court upholds a woman's right to choose, there's probably going to be some changes in the standard. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it will likely be more restrictive, you think? I think it will be more restrictive, and I think you will probably see quite a few references to what goes on in European nations, ah. where um, uh, abortion in some cases are is restricted at 16 or 18 or 20 weeks with exceptions for uh, the woman's health. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yep. So we might see an exception for woman's health. Yes. As yep. a negotiating. Yes, yep. Place. And yeah, and, and, and again, that's the thing about tests, right? Because you're trying to balance competing interests. Right, okay? very complicated. And, and it gets very complicated. And the last test that we're going to discuss before we get to the issue of intent or purpose, okay, really reflects how tests can be very complicated, okay? And we're going to shift gears here, listeners, to a different area of law, okay? So this is and administrative law. This is administrative law. And for those and of you... And, and for those, don't for those, go to sleep because this is important. And 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 uh, yeah, don't go to sleep. And, and by the <laughs> way, please don't go to sleep because it would break my heart because this is what I got my PhD in. <laughs> <laughs> this is Augie's great love is administrative law. Okay. Uh, for those of you who don't know, administrative law concerns the body of law that has arisen um, in most countries. Um, when countries develop their administrative state, their bureaucracies, right? So what should guide the behavior of bureaucrats and agencies, right? Now, one of the big questions in administrative law is the extent to which federal courts should defer to agency expertise and interpretations of law. So, Ania, so let's take our or, listeners back to a previous episode, okay? Let's say Congress passes a law telling the EPA to clean up air pollution. And the EPA goes through notice and comment, informal rulemaking, comes up with a regulation to clean up air pollution. They're right? going to put giant filters at the edge <laughs> of the country yeah. in both directions. Yes, and, and, and suck in all the air in the earth and yes. put it through a filter and pull out the particulate matter. And they're going to force big corporations and states to pay for it. Right. Okay. And the big corporations and the states are like, hey, wait a minute here. 
I don't want to pay for your big stupid filters. I don't even know if that's going to work. And, and I don't, yeah. And, and more. And why I, do I have to pay for to China's pay for bad air? Blah blah blah. That blows over the United States. Yada yada yada. But for administrative law, they're going to go ahead and focus on the following: Does the EPA even have that authority? <laughs> and the EPA says, "Well, Congress said we're supposed to clean up air pollution." Right. This is the best solution. So it begs the question, to what extent should federal courts defer to the expert judgment of bureaucrats? Well, I would think that, that the test would be whether it was clear what Congress, see, now we're getting into intent. Okay, but, but whoa, 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 stop right, stop right there. You actually are tapping into the first part of the current test. So in 1984, in the case of Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council, the Supreme Court was asked to decide to what extent should federal courts and federal judges defer to agency interpretations of the law. And the court came up with a two-part test. Of course, it's a multi-part test. It's a multi-part test. Of course it is. (laughs) <laughs> but Nia, you just went ahead and identified the first part of the test. The first part of the test is this. If Congress's intent with a law is clear, then both the agency and federal courts must honor that intent. Okay. That makes sense. That makes because sense. Because that's the will of the people. That is, yeah, right. that's right. It's the, the people's theor- elected, the people's elected representatives, right? Yeah. Which is theoretically the will of the people. The although, people. boy, we could talk about that. But that's like eighteen episodes of yes, complaining okay, of de- we could do at some point of democratic theory of what goes <laughs> right. on in elections <laughs> and blah, actual blah, blah, blah. politics. Yes, yeah, right. yeah. Okay, there but, would need to be adult beverages involved in those episodes. Oh my goodness, yeah, right. <laughs> okay. There, 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 there were, probably wouldn't be enough coffee for me, right? <laughs> so to, so if, we, a, if, the, if the Congress, so to use your example, so if the Congress says to the EPA, sally forth and do this thing, and here's a bunch of money, and we don't care how you get it done, get it done. Get it done. Then the EPA comes back and says, we got this giant filter thing that yes. we're going to do, and the Congress says, fine, and they give them money. The court now knows that their intent is clear. Like, yes. that's but, yes. But let's just say Congress's intent with a law is unclear. Go clean up the air. How are you? How would you like us to do that? We don't care. Okay. Then a reviewing court must accept quote a permissible or quote reasonable agency interpretation of the law so so let's just use your example further so the congress says to the epa go clean up go clean up the air yes. and the congress and epa says great we're going to shut down all industry <laughs> in the united states that and, would not- and we're going to trade embargo every other country that doesn't shut down all their industry until until the earth is clean right yeah, until right. the air is clean that is probably one, not what Congress intended. Intended in two, 
way not, outside the reasonable, reasonable standard. standard. Yes. Okay. Because that is not what Congress Congress okay. did. And goes to your original point of do they even have the power to do that? No, they don't. Okay. So, okay. So, okay. All right. But nevertheless, okay, this, okay, for the first part of the test, Nia, how often is Congress clear with its intent in a law? That would be never. Okay. Well, because we, not okay, but, never, but pretty but, rarely. But, because very, in the world we live in, you have to write things so vaguely to get enough people to sign on to agree to it. Very good, right? That it's, that it's written, okay, EPA, go fix this, go fix air. And the yes. EPA is like, could you vague that up for me? How would you <laughs> like me to do that? <laughs> right, like, what, another, another what, kind of, what kind of cockamamie, you know, law or act is that? that you know, the act of EPA will clean up all the air. And the EPA is like, what do you want me to do about it? Like, about it. Yeah, okay. So that's how those things get written for real, yeah. sadly. And, and that's the reality, right? And that's because you need 300, 435 votes on something. Well, yes. no, you need half of that. But to get half of that, you have to get at least bipartisan support. We know this studying legislative bodies. Right. The more specific, the clearer a law is. The less likely it is to pass. Pass. That's right. <laughs> okay. Which frustrates people because we would like for the laws to be very clear. Clear. Again, if one of the purposes of law is behavioral norms, okay, well, gee Louise, I mean, you know. Yeah, you're setting me up for failure. Yeah, That's like when my mother, when I used to leave the house when I was a kid, and my mother would say, be good. What? What does that mean? Yeah, and I'm a, sure your mom said that to you. Be good. Yeah, yes. And there's a huge range of right. being good. <laughs> that, that range. I mean, uh, if I come home and I'm like, I didn't kill more than four people today. Is that good? Like, it's like, where's the? And by the way, I don't kill people, so that's not. That's no. But my you know mom would say to me, Nia, "What were you thinking when I came home and I had gotten in trouble?" And I was just like, "But I was trying to be good." <laughs> Yeah, be good. So, uh, okay, I can see where that you would want a reasonable agency interpreter. You wouldn't want the agency to say, well, then we'll just take all the right. So this crushes my dream of running the Space Force and running roughshod over all the other agencies and everything in the United States. Because more than likely, the federal courts would go ahead and say, okay, Congress didn't give you a lot of clear guidance, Nia. On the other hand, you wanting to go ahead and take over pretty much every federal and state agency that has anything to do with state, uh, with space, okay, is probably not a reasonable interpretation of what Congress had in mind when they passed the law. But this applies only to agencies, right? That's right. So if I'm president, I can do all that. Well. Okay, back to being president. <laughs> But again, listeners, if I'm limited in my agency's ability to take over other agencies, and that's fine, fair enough, then but I may I just, have to be president. But listeners, take a look at the last couple tests we just discussed, right? Um, you know, undue burden and the Chevron two-part uh, test. This gets at 
what Nia has been talking about with both of these podcast episode episodes about judicial tests, which is a lot of these tests force judges to try to ascertain what was the intent of the government regulating a behavior. Well, and going back to your imminent lawless action, what's the intent of the individual? Individual who's engaged in a seemingly protected constitutional behavior. Right. If I'm standing in front of a crowd and I'm whipping them up, right, I'm like, I'm dynamically speaking, I'm allowed to do that. I am allowed. And then I say, let's go to the library and burn it to the ground, which I would never do, by the way, because that is heresy. But, <laughs> but if I I'm said kinda, that, I'm kind of I'm kind of thinking, Nia, that you just saying that hypothetically in this podcast episode might get me fired. Is gonna Please lead, don't fire me, library. Okay, it's going to lead to some of your colleagues wanting <laughs> to take away your membership in various professional associations. Yeah, no kidding. We don't but, joke about that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, because we don't burn books. We don't believe in burning books or taking books off the shelf, and that's a whole nother episode. Um, okay. Don't but, read it if you don't want to read it. But, but imminent lawless point, action and, is, a, is an intent thing. If I don't intend for people to actually go burn down the library, which I would never intend, what I intend for them to do is go yell at the library, right? Like go stand outside and yell. Because you're rhetorically. Right. Okay. So in, in, in this becomes so problematic, right? Okay. So Nia, I think it was in a, 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 a constitution day that you and I did a couple of years ago. Um, we talked about the right to protest, right? And um, the Supreme Court has allowed the government to place time, place, and manner restrictions on where people can exercise their First Amendment right to protest, right? Now, right. you can't stand in the middle of the street and protest because it's a danger to other people. Okay. And, and, and that's the logic of allowing that restriction, right? right. Because that restriction is not designed to limit who can protest or what kind of protest. The purpose is to allow government to further um, its uh, police power, right? You know, to protect the citizenry from activities that may cause automobile accidents. Public safety. Okay, et cetera. On the other hand, Let's just say you start your protest on a college campus, but then the it spills energy- out into the street, and you start walking up the street, and you're yelling because you're going to walk to the Capitol. You're going to uh, walk to. We've never heard that before. You're yeah, going right? to walk to the Capitol, and you're going to yell at the Capitol building about. Was your intent when you started the protest to cause? Okay, a public safety crisis. Right. In other words, or in the language of Brandenburg versus Ohio, imminent lawless action. No, but it forces judges to ask why law enforcement may have arrested you. Okay, was your intent to go ahead and squelch the protest? But then it also forces judges to get at your intent when you started the protest was you 
was the purpose of your protest, you know, the ultimate, if you will, outcome, imminent lawless action. Now, if you got a good attorney, the good attorney will coach you to go ahead and say, no, we just wanted to highlight this injustice. How unhappy we were about X yes, thing. Right? right, okay. But again, the tests are designed to go ahead and provide clarity for both the government and individuals, interest groups, corporations, et cetera. But it does force judges to try to figure out what was the purpose of the law or what was the purpose of the government action on one side. On the other side, it forces judges to go ahead and figure out what was in the mind of 250 college students who were upset with tuition hikes. Right, which is why you get into the question of, of police using tear gas. Yes. Or, or other kinds of things on, against protesters. Versus- was there, was there a danger of imminent lawless action? That's right. That they were trying to prevent. And did the, did the protesters intend to either give the impression they were going to be lawless or actually to be lawless? Yes. Because sometimes you're doing it to be threatening, right? But yes. if you threaten people enough, then they're going to react. The, the, what I'm fascinated by is this idea of, of the, the judge having to figure out what's the intent on both sides. Yes. And whose burden is higher in terms of limiting constitutional rights. And then how do you figure out intent? So I'll give you an example. You recall a few years ago, Nia, the Trump administration takes office. President Trump issues an executive order that banned travel from about six or seven uh, countries. Right. The infamous travel ban, right? And the travel ban gets challenged, okay, for, uh, for a number of reasons, racial discrimination, religious discrimination, et cetera. And the cases go to federal courts. And you had some federal judges saying, well, we know the purpose of the travel ban because when Trump was running for office, he exhibited racial and religious discriminatory intent. Right. So do we want judges then to start figuring out intent based on what you may have said or done in the past? You see how complicated this gets? Right. And for listeners, I want to urge you to think about everything that you put online. Uh, yes. <laughs> because this, this is the kind of thing where intent could conceivably come back to haunt you 20 years from now. Yes. Um, many of us wrote screeds when we were young about how awful the government is and how blah, 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 blah. And if I could do this or that or the other thing, I would. Now, many of us are not taking the Unabomber approach of then blowing people up and trying to kill them over it because we're just not homicidal maniacs. maniacs. But we what? have written those things and put them out there they could conceivably come back to hurt you. Uh, like, okay, in, in your example of Donald Trump is perfect. Um, and 
for those of listeners to this podcast who are fans of Donald Trump, I'm sorry if this is going to sound insulting, but Donald Trump is a bombastic individual as a speaker. He just, sure. that's his nature as a speaker. And so it is unlikely that he was thinking long-term intent about most things that he said on the campaign trail, right? Like he just, he gets verved up and excited and he starts talking and it's, uh, you know, people people say things that aren't necessarily their their full intent. They just say things in the moment they're excited. They, they may not even it. believe it, but they use hyperbole. They right. use rhetoric that is designed to go ahead and mobilize individuals to support their candidacy. In the case of Donald Trump, right? Exactly. Okay, and I mean, that's a normal thing that politicians do. I'm not I mean, entirely of, certain that we want judges to be going back. And reading something that is conceivably two or three or four or 20 years old. Yes. And saying, well, you know, that Augenbaugh, he's always been a rabble rouser. I found in his high school yearbook where it said most likely to break the law or whatever. And see, they were yeah, right. He, That's, you know, he's, you know, he's got, he's got quotes from, you know, uh, communists. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. But, but again, that actually came up in the 1950s and 60s, okay, with the communist witch hunts, with Which you is know, the, McCarthy these, hear, McCarthy hearings, right? So it's why these tests can be somewhat scary. They can be scary and they can be subjective, right? right. Oh, well, it, it, the Miller test is wildly subjective. Yeah, right? I mean- it, Does this give you scientific value? Does this give you cultural value? Does this give you- <laughs> it, it's just porn, people. Calm down, right? Like, right. okay, um, or or you know the clear and present danger test, right? I mean, your definition, Nia, of clear might be wholly different than mine, but you got a federal judge who is just like, I don't know, that Defense Department officials seem to have a pretty good handle on the threats from so and so from this nation, right? And imminent. What does yes. imminent mean? Yes. Does imminent mean in the next five minutes? Does imminent mean in the next 20 minutes? I mean, that or does weeks. imminent mean in the next two weeks? Right. Like, yes. Like, I am imminently retiring, but it's about 20 years from now. <laughs> yeah, right. It Do feels you know? some days when I look at my, you know, at my retirement funds, it feels pretty imminent because it's getting a little scary out there. Well, or depending but, on how I feel when I wake up some mornings, I'm like, wow. Maybe I should retire. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I just want to caution listeners as our last thing before we go. Again, um, it, I don't, I do not, I'm not in any way trying to suppress your speech. I'm not in any way trying to suppress what you put online um, because you should feel free to put whatever you want to put online. And you should be protected from other people putting stuff online about you that you didn't that's that's not cool right like this whole revenge picture thing that people put up sometimes wrong 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 like i don't support any of that that's terrible and those those things should be taken down but i'm i'm suggesting the things that you put up about yourself if you are studying to be a lawyer or a doctor or a public servant in some way where you could get tangled up in a court case where somebody could go back and look at your 
Facebook feed. I know nobody has Facebook feed anymore or TikTok or whatever. Or Instagram. Just, just or, curated, or, curated thinking not only about the now, but also about the future. Yeah. That's because, all I'm again, suggesting. I mean, because, you know, these kinds of tests force government officials to go ahead and try to figure out, is, is this their intent? Is this right. what they believe? And it's now finally manifest itself into what they've been accused of doing, right? I mean, I still go back to the lemon test, right? You know, what is excessive government entanglement, right? You know, a school district allows certain groups to use school property and facilities after hours because otherwise the buildings are not being used, but they've already been paid for it. Or right? prayer before school. Okay. Like they I mean, get to have a religious meeting before school. So is the intent to go ahead and establish religion or is the intent just to go ahead and have kids actually do something productive either before or after school? Okay. Right. And are we going to charge these kids for the lights being on and the door being open? You know, like I mean, whatever those costs are for the building. No, we're not going to do that because as long as we allow any group that wants to meet. Meet. And, and, and that's where sometimes schools get into trouble because then they start picking and choosing. Right. You should have all or none. And at that point, then judges start asking questions like, well, what's your purpose or intent? Right. Okay. <laughs> why are you favoring one group over another yeah so but i'm, I'm glad so, we did this episode because i get to ask a lot of question a lot of questions uh particularly from um non-academics well how's the supreme court evaluating or judging this and i'm like well they they use tests right and when i explain the test a lot of times people are like that doesn't clarify things for me and i said nope nope <laughs> And they're like, can you teach this? Yeah. And I'm wait, like, wait, how is that the answer? Sorry, that's sorry. just the answer. <laughs> that's just the answer. And they're, you know, and they look at you like, you know, a dog that doesn't understand a command, right? They cock their that, head and they're yeah, like, exactly. Their huh? ears go uneven and they go, oh, <laughs> right? okay. You know, some of my favorite moments of, of uh, Scooby-Doo in that old cartoon was when <laughs> Scooby was just like, right? Ruh, ruh, raggy. <laughs> ruh, yeah. ruh, raggy. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Thank you, thanks. Augie. Yeah, well, thank you, Nia. I enjoyed it. Me too. Uh, we'll come back and talk about this um, later, I suspect, when the ruling from the Dobbs case comes out. Well, let's face it. I mean, when we do the Supreme Court term wrap-up, Okay, chances are there's going to be easily two or three cases where the, the court used some sort of test. Ah, <laughs> you're going to be like, and some sort of intent. Yeah. What yeah, in the yeah, heck are yeah, they thinking? Yep. Yeah. And then you're going to be like, so they used what test? <laughs> and we will revisit. Thanks, yes. Augie. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries.
Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.